seated. Hey guys, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. We're really grateful that you would join us for worship today. Um, And when you came in, there was a card on your chair on one side. It's got some announcements and you'll hear more about that uh, later uh, during our service. On the other side, it's got some information about our gathering and what you can expect from your time with us, as well as some information we would love to get from you, like your name and your email address. And if you would trust us with that information, uh, you can fill it out and put it in one of two places. There's a box back here in this corner next to the sign that says give, uh, or there's an orange desk on your way out. Um, There's pens at both of those locations. You can fill out the card and give it to the person. They'll get it to the right place so that we can contact you, um, and we'll do that in a respectful way. Now, this weekend was 180 weekend for our students, um, and many of you were involved in that as a student or as a driver or as a leader, and we're very grateful for all that you did to invest in our students this weekend. Uh, I know that it was a great time for them. And I want to say a special thank you to um, our deacon of student ministry. His name's uh, Damon Murray. He's right here trying, not, trying to not be seen. Um, and uh, so thanks, man. Thanks for all your hard work. It was a really great weekend. Uh, if you'll take your Bible and turn to Acts 16, uh, that's where we're going to get in just a moment. Acts 16. One of the things that is a passion of our church is uh, church planting. We want to see churches planted all over our region, all around the world. Um, and maybe you've been here a while and you kind of know what that's about. Maybe you're here and you're going, what's, what's that about? Why would that be a passion for a church to plant other churches? And, and here's part of the answer. Uh, part of the answer is that the Bible describes church planting. We're going to see that in Acts. But another answer is this. Peter Wagner uh, said that church planting is God's primary evangelism strategy. So in other words, God's primary means for getting the gospel into the world is through the planting of healthy gospel-centered churches. And so that's part of the reason we're passionate about planting here. So how are we involved? Well, we're invested in a number of ways. We support Uh, We support planters both domestically and internationally, and there are pictures out here in the hallway next to the coffee. Those are people that we support and want to be praying for. Uh, Will and Teresa Barkley left this week to go to Indonesia uh, to serve at the International Church of Batam, and so we need to be praying for them. All of our pastors are involved in coaching relationships with other pastors to help their churches grow. Uh, we're invested in the Acts 29 network, and so we're, we're passionate about planting churches. Now today, we're going to see, in Acts 16, we're going to see a church get planted. That's what we're going to watch. Uh, you might be familiar with a book of the Bible called Philippians that was written by a man named Paul, who we're going to read about today, back to this church in the city of Philippi. And this section of Acts here about uh, Philippians is one of the longest sections devoted to a single church. Now, in the passage, we're going to see a narrative of what every church planter needs. Every church planter needs a clear call from God, a faithful team around him, eyes to see God at work in and through him, a heart to trust God even when things are hard, to know the culture and what accommodations to make to it, And every church planter needs to praise God even in the midst of suffering. And we're going to see that played out here in this narrative about the church at Philippi. Now, when I say church planter, some of you might be tempted to turn off the listener because you think I'm talking about maybe two or three specific people who may at some point in the future be called to plant a church. But the reality is, 
every follower of Jesus needs to know what God has called them to do with their lives, whether that's to lay brick, work at a bank, or be a church planter. All of us need to know what God's called us to do. All of us need a team around us. We're not made to live life by ourselves. We need to be in community with other followers of Jesus. We need a team. And all of us need to trust God and praise him, particularly when things are hard. And so when we're reading through this chapter of Acts, Acts 16, and we're seeing Paul plant this church and we're seeing what God does through him, please don't think this is for somebody else. This is for us. All of us need these things, including you if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my prayer specifically for you is that God would open your heart to understand his word today and that you would see something in the gospel that's both beautiful and compelling, compelling enough for you to lay down everything you're pursuing to follow Christ. And so let's read. We're going to read chapter 15, starting at verse 36, and we're going to go through verse 10 of chapter 16. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Paul and Barnabas and all the men who were involved in this church planting team. Lord, thank you that Luke uh, wrote this, this book of the Bible, that you, Holy Spirit, inspired him to write it and that he worked and labored to, to write this down so that we could have an, an account of Paul's journey and his mission. Lord, I pray that as we listen and watch uh, in your word what Paul does or what you do through Paul, I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged. I pray that we would be called up and out to follow you with passion and with faith. Lord, I pray that you would raise up a Silas and a Timothy here. I pray that you would raise up a Paul here and that you would use men and women in this place to do amazing things far beyond all that we're able 
to even fathom and that we would be faithful to follow you and to trust you with all of it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now let's start with Paul's team. Now, at the beginning of our passage, Paul and Barnabas have come back from Jerusalem. They've been there because of a debate about the gospel versus circumcision and the law of Moses. There were some who taught that you had to be circumcised to really be a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James stood opposed to that in Acts 15 and said, no, we are saved by the grace of Jesus through faith in Jesus, and so we don't need to add something to the gospel because if you add something to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel. And so they leave from Jerusalem with a letter. They go through uh, the areas encouraging and strengthening churches, and now Paul and Barnabas are ready to set out on their next journey. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. Now, John Mark was his cousin, and Barnabas was Barnabas. He's an encourager. Paul is not having any part of it. Paul is saying, hey, he left us back in Acts 13. I don't want him on the team anymore. We don't know why he left. We don't know anything about that. But what we do know is that Barnabas and Mark go this way. Paul goes this way with a new team. And his team includes Silas, who is one of the men that came from Jerusalem in Acts 15. It includes Luke, who joins the team here in Acts 16. Now, we know that Luke is a part, not because his name is mentioned, but because the pronouns go to we and us here in Acts 16. So Luke was a part of this team. And then another young man that they pick up is a young man named Timothy. Now, Timothy was a special young man even before Paul met him. He was well-known around the region. He was raised by his grandmother and mother to love the Bible and to follow Jesus. His father was a Greek man we find out, and so he has not been circumcised. Now, Paul wants to take him on this mission. Timothy is a Jewish man who has not followed Jewish custom and law, and so Paul has him to be circumcised here in Acts 16. Now, we see a lot about Timothy throughout the New Testament. Paul calls him a son of the, in, his, in the faith. He, he takes him to some specific churches like the church at Ephesus and Corinth and leaves him there to help get things set up and fixed. He loves Timothy, believes in Timothy, supports Timothy. He writes two books of the Bible to Timothy, first and second Timothy. And so now Paul's team is assembled. They're ready to go and make disciples and plant churches, but they really don't have a clear call. Paul is just pursuing what he thinks God's called him to do. And here in verse six, we're going to see that God clarifies Paul's sense of direction and calling. And we look at Paul's call here in verse 6. And they, that's the team, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, we don't know how. We don't know why. We just know that they were trying to go a certain way, and God shut the door. That's the vernacular we would use, that God closed a door on their plans. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, notice a couple of things about Paul's call. First, Paul is not sitting still waiting on the call of God on his life. Paul's not like sitting still and not obeying what God has already called Paul to do. 
God had called Paul to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And so Paul is actively pursuing that, and God is directing that and redirecting that at times. Now, very often as Christians, we can use calling language to not be obedient. Well, I just don't feel like God's called me to that. Well, if his word has called you to it, you're called. Whether you've received a vision, dream, email, whatever, if God's word has called you to it, you're called to it. So don't use calling language to avoid obedience. Second, when God gives direction, Paul immediately obeys. Now, he's got a team with him. He's got Silas and Luke and Timothy. And so, you know, he's, he probably discussed it with them. He probably didn't get up and go, hey, guys, get up. We're going. I mean, he, he probably discussed, hey, this is what happened. This is how that's felt. I, I feel like this is what God's called us to do. But it didn't take him a year and a half to figure that out. Like, he, he immediately obeyed. He did what God had called him to do. Now, um, there are a few things we need to say here to help us know how to apply this passage today. First, we do believe that God is able to give clarity and guidance to his people in a variety of ways. I don't think anybody wants to be on the list of people saying God can't do something. All right? So I, I believe fully that he can lead us through his word, through prayer, through other believers, through providence. In other words, just kind of what our life is lining up to look like. And sometimes through extraordinary means like dreams and visions. Now, the only one of these that bears the weight of authority is his word. And so if we have a sense of calling to something, that sense of calling has to be compared to his word. And if it's not consistent with his word, then it's not a calling. I spent a lot of my life working with teenagers and college students, and I remember a conversation I had with a young man named Charlie. Charlie was a neat young man. He loved Jesus. He really was trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus and, and what, what all that meant. And he and I were talking one Wednesday night after one of our gatherings, and, and he came up to me and he said, Brian, listen, I really feel like God's called me not to go to school tomorrow. I said, tell me about that. I don't know, man. It's just a sense. I mean, I'm just kind of sensing from the Lord that I'm not to go to school tomorrow. I said, well, okay, Charlie, let's, let's kind of run that through God's word. So if you were to tell that to your mom and dad, what would they say? Well, they would tell me to go. I said, okay. So the Bible tells you to honor your mom and dad. Okay, all right. So what would your principal say? If you went to your principal or one of your teachers and said, you know, I feel like God's telling me not to come to school today, what would they say? Well, they would probably tell me to come to school. Well, the Bible tells us to submit to authority. Well, but I feel like God's calling me. Well, you're wrong, Charlie. You're wrong. It's not the Lord. You probably have a test tomorrow and you haven't studied. <clears throat> if your calling does not match up with God's word, then your calling is not from God. It might be bad pizza. Okay? So if you have a sense that God is calling you to some step of obedience, here are some good questions. Does it line up with God's word? Has someone affirmed this in you? Particularly people closest to you, like your spouse, or if you're a uh, a student in the home, maybe your parents. Has someone affirmed this in you? Are you seeing fruit that would lend itself toward your pursuing this? I feel like God's called me to be a rocket science. Buddy, you're not good at math. He's not called you to that. Is providence lining up to make this a possibility? So you need to ask these questions. 
Now, we don't see all of this worked out here in Acts 16. This is kind of gathering wisdom from the rest of God's word here. But you have to think that Paul would have gone to Silas and Luke and Timothy and said, hey, guys, I I had this dream. I really feel like this is where we need to go. And they would have had this conversation. So Paul is called by God. He's given clear direction. And then Paul gets to Philippi. And now we're going to see how the church in Philippi was born. And it starts with a young lady named Lydia. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we, that's Paul's team, see we is including Luke, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And so this woman's named Lydia. Uh, She sells purple fabric. Now, this, this purple fabric was the ultimate status symbol. It was very, very expensive. People had it uh, to show that they had money. The purple dye was made from the ink of a mollusk in the Mediterranean, and it took 8,000 of those mollusks to make one gram of this ink, of this dye. And so it was very expensive um, and, and a status symbol. So she's either a local contact, like a distributor, or she's heavily involved in the making of this fabric. At any rate, she's probably a very wealthy woman. And in a moment, she's going to invite Paul and his team to stay at her home with the rest of her household. And she's leading this prayer meeting, and she's called a worshiper of God. And look in verse 14 at what God does. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, Paul and his team are sharing God's word with her, and God does something amazing. He opens her heart to understand what, God, what Paul was saying about God's word. That means exactly what it sounds like it means. That Paul's speaking, Lydia is listening, and God opens her heart to believe and understand. It's amazing what God does. Lydia's listening. She understands who Jesus is. Something happens between verse 14 and verse 15 because in verse 15 she's baptized. So it it seems that in, in between there she believes the gospel. She's radically saved and changed. And then in verse 15 she's baptized. And then it says in verse 15 that after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So her life has changed. She extends hospitality to Paul and his team. And the first member of the launch team of the church at Philippi is found. Second person is probably not the person you would think to include in the launch team of a church plant. It's a demon-possessed slave girl. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, so this is Paul and his team and Lydia and her crew, and they're meeting again at the same place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So this is a a girl who is possessed by a demon. She has a spirit of divination. And her owners, were, was, they were using her to make money by telling the future. 
Now she's following them around, verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I don't know, of, I don't know how you feel about publicity. Some people think you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity, but I think if you have a demon-possessed person yelling that people should listen to you, that's probably not good. Okay? And that's what's been going on for several days. Look at verse, eight, uh, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, I, I want to ask Paul, how many days did it take for you to get annoyed? Why didn't you just do this day one? Like, we're done with this woman. We're, we're finished with this problem. But... Apparently, it took several days. Now, we don't know if this young girl was saved here. It's not explicitly said in the text. Many scholars suggest that because of where it's positioned between Lydia and between the jailer that's coming at the end of the chapter, who both are saved, many suggest that she was and, in fact, became a part of this church. I'd love to believe that story. We just The Bible just doesn't fill in that detail. At any rate, her life has changed, and the people who had been making money off of her are not happy about it. Verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Think town square, marketplace, place of gathering where people are. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their, their feet in the stocks. Now, Paul and Silas and his team are accused of bringing a new religion. Um, In that day, a Roman citizen was not permitted to practice any faith or religion that was not officially sanctioned by the Roman government. And so these people, um, the owners of the slave girl, are accusing Paul and Silas of breaking Roman law. And so they're thrown into the inner prison, which would have been the darkest, grossest part of the prison. That's where all the refuse and filth would have run to. It would have been kind of at the bottom of the prison. And then places them in stocks, which was a piece of wood with holes for the feet, where the feet would have had to have been spread out in a painful position. And this is where they meet the third member of the launch team of their church. And he's a jailer. But before we get to him, we see in verse 25, how Paul and Silas respond to difficulty. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I bet they were. Can you imagine someone in that place, in that difficult time, singing praise and praying? I bet they were listening to them. They probably had never seen anything like that before. And then there was a great earthquake, verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He would rather take his life 
than suffer the shame of not doing his job well. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He had never seen men like this. He had never seen men who would suffer a beating and then put in the inner prison with their legs in such a painful position who were singing and praising God. And then men who had freedom given to them who stayed. And he runs into them and he realizes something is different about these men. And he asks them a question in verse 30. What must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and all your household. What must I do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and all your household. And something amazing happens to this jailer. Verse 32, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. I don't know what happened in the jailer's mind that he thought, I'll take them home. I was, I was told to put them in the inner prison. I'm going to take them to my house and we're going to feed them. Okay, jailer. Something's going on with him. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed. So these people believe in Jesus, they get baptized, and they have a potluck. First Baptist church ever planted right here in the city of Philippi. That was a joke. Thank you for laughing. Helps me feel better about myself. By all accounts, this is the beginning of the church at Philippi. Now what do we see here in this church? First, we see a redeemed people here. We see three, well, at least two people explicitly, a third, I think, who is redeemed, who are changed by Jesus. They're not, they're not, uh, Lydia's not a good person who became a better person. She was a lost person who needed to be saved. This jailer had probably seen a lot and he needed to believe in Jesus to be saved. And so we see here a redeemed people who have been saved by Jesus. Then we see a diverse people. They're, they're diverse socially. Can you imagine Lydia and this slave girl having a conversation? So what do you do? Well, I'm unemployed now, uh, but I used to you know, be possessed and tell people the future. Oh, would you like some coffee? You know, I mean, how would that go? And then the jailer, all of his experience, they had experienced diversity. Like they very vastly different lives. This jailer, who was probably a Roman veteran, a veteran of the Roman army, can you imagine his perspective of the things he's seen and the weight he might carry? And then they had ethnic diversity. There were Jews and Gentiles in this church. It's also not a perfect church. That's why Paul wrote the letter of Philippians back to them. In fact, in Philippians 2, he tells them to be humble. You don't write that if it's not needed. In Philippians 4, Paul writes and names two women and says, tell them to get along. Can you imagine if your name was in the Bible forever and somebody said, hey, tell those two women to get along and that was your name? I mean, maybe we'll meet these two women one day and that will be, hey, I read your name. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. You're not the first person to say that. So they're redeemed people. They're not a perfect people, but they're redeemed people. And then there are people who worship and serve God in the world. They serve God. They worship Him. 
How do we know this? Because this group of people became a church that Paul would write a letter back to with elders and deacons and faithful members who are serving Jesus. And so this church is planted. It's a redeemed people that worships and serves God in the world. It's a church that loves Paul and supports the work of church planting. This church here in Philippi was the main funding agent of Paul and his mission. And so Paul would write in Philippians, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved this church. He loved this church and they loved him. And again, we know that a mature church is established here because Paul writes a letter back to them. And he writes, he writes this, I'm sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's not written to individuals, that's written to a church. Made up of individuals, yes, but it's written to a church. So we see here that this church is planted and thrives and flourishes and supports church planting all around the region and prays for Paul and sends workers to help him. All because of three, these three people. Lydia, this slave girl potentially, and this jailer and his family. And God did amazing things through them. So how do we apply this into our lives? First, the gospel frees us to pursue our calling for the glory of God. The gospel frees us to pursue our calling for the glory of God. Now, many times when we think about the gospel, we think about being saved. And so we understand gospel as being forgiven, being justified, being declared righteous, um, all the things that happen at the front of it. And the way sometimes we can understand the gospel is that we need the gospel for the beginning and the rest is up to us. So I need Jesus now and the rest is up to me. But the reality is you and I never outgrow the gospel. We never get to a point in our lives where we don't need the gospel anymore. There's never coming a day where John 15, 5 is not true about us. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. There's never coming a day when that's not true. The gospel is the beginning the gospel will continue, will, will help us endure in the Christian walk. And when we stand before Jesus, we will hope in the gospel. We will not hope in ourselves. We will not hope in our accomplishments. We will hope only in the gospel on that day. Everything else will melt away. But many of us think the gospel is simply what gets us in and the rest is up to us. But the gospel is what gives us hope from when we meet Jesus to when we see him. It's the answer to our sin. It's the answer to our selfishness. It's the answer to our fear. It's the answer to our anxiety. It's the answer to our what ifs. The gospel is the answer to those things. And the gospel gives us hope and frees us to pursue our calling for the glory of God. Now, some of us have believed a true gospel for forgiveness, and we believe a false gospel for everything else. 
We believe that our only hope to be forgiven is Jesus, but our hope for everything else is me. That's a false gospel. We know our forgiveness is accomplished by Jesus, but we, we stumble into thinking that our, identi- our identity, our obedience, and our calling is all about us. That's a false gospel. The gospel frees us from that kind of thinking. It reminds us that our only hope in forgiveness and in faithfulness is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's our only hope. So the gospel frees us from fear and it frees us to pursue God, whatever He's called us to do. So what is God inviting you to do? What is God inviting you to do? Does it line up with His Word? Are others affirming this in your life? Are you seeing fruit in your life to support this call? Is the providence of your life lining up for this to be feasible? The gospel frees us to pursue what God has called us to do. So many times the thing that keeps us from pursuing is like in our brains, it's not, we're not thinking, hey, I'm believing the gospel, but what it really kind of gets to is a fear of failure. I'm afraid that if I pursue what God has called me to do, I'm going to fail at it. If you're a child of God, please hear this. If you're a child of God, at the end of anything you pursue, Worst case scenario, you're still a child of God. And faithfulness is never failure. Faithfulness is never failure. And so the gospel, because our identity is in Jesus and our hope is in Jesus and our strength is in Jesus, the gospel frees us to pursue whatever God's called us to with reckless abandon, like Paul does here. So for some of us, God's called us to some things, and we, we want to obey, but we're... we're afraid. The gospel frees us from that. The gospel frees us from that. Second, The gospel reconciles relationships. One of the most challenging parts of the passage is not really in the Philippi piece, it's before that, where Paul and Mark part ways. Acts doesn't give us any indication that that relationship is mended. Paul goes his way, Barnabas and Mark go their way, and we're left wondering what happened. And maybe you're in a conflict in a relationship that feels very much like this. Like there's no hope for the relationship that too much has happened for this to be mended. That there's really no way this can be put back together. But the gospel reconciles relationships. Just like Paul and Mark. Again, we don't know how it happened. And Acts doesn't tell us much. But we know from the rest of the Bible that, Mark, that Paul mentions Mark in two places. He mentions him in Philemon, where he says that Mark is a fellow worker. 
And he mentions them again in 2 Timothy where he says that Luke, he, he mentions Luke, Paul does, he mentions Luke, and then he asks for Mark to come to see him. And then he says this, because he is very useful for ministry. So the gospel mended their relationship. I don't know what has caused the rift in your relationships. I don't know what is keeping you from reconciling, but I do know this, that the gospel believed and demonstrated will reconcile relationships. That the gospel believed and the gospel demonstrated will reconcile relationships. You may need to forgive something. That's that's the gospel demonstrated. You you may need to believe something, that in Christ I have the, the power to love this person. In Christ, I had the ability to forgive this person. You might have to believe the gospel and you might need to demonstrate the gospel. And when that happens, the gospel can reconcile relationships. There's no relationship too far gone for that. There's no relationship too far gone for that. Paul and Mark are evidence of that. Third thing that we should apply into our lives based on this passage is this. The gospel redeems anyone who believes. The gospel redeems anyone who will believe. Anybody. We see this here in in Philippi, here in Acts 16. Now, Very often we kind of have lists of different kinds of people. We have people that are easy to save. We have people that have seen too much to to be saved. And then we have people that are all into crazy and we just really don't think they can be saved. Like We know intellectually that they can be, but in our hearts we're like, man, there's a lot lot of crazy to overcome in that. And you see that in Acts 16. You see Lydia, who is a religious woman who's very close to the things of God. She's leading a Bible study before she's saved. And that's the kind of person we kind of think, hey, I could share the gospel with them. I can invite them to church. I can invite them to community group. I could engage that person because they're already really close. I mean, it's like a gimme putt right there. And I don't play golf. Did I use that right? Okay, maybe not. So that, that would be easy. I can do that. And then we've got people in our lives like the jailer. They've seen too much. Their hearts are hard. There's just no way they could really be saved. And so I won't even go there and share the gospel with them. But Paul did. And he was radically saved. And then you've got this this girl that was all into crazy. And we just kind of have a category in our minds sometimes of, man, that's just way too far gone. There's no way I could ever see that person's life be changed. Paul didn't have that category. Paul's category was this. The gospel will redeem anyone who will believe. Anybody. There's nobody too good enough to be saved. There's nobody into too much crazy to be saved. There's nobody who's seen too much to be saved. Anybody who will believe can be redeemed. Anyone. And that's really good news for us. That means that any of us can be saved. It means that any of us can be redeemed. It means that any of us, if we will trust Christ, can be saved.
And that's really good news. It's really good news. Let's pray together. Father, thanks so much for your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for uh, your kindness and your love. Jesus, thank you that anyone who believes can be redeemed. And thank you that many of us are a part of that number. Lord, I pray and ask 